Mark's Gospel. Beginning with verse 4. And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were afraid. And he said unto them, Be not afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fundamental fact of our faith. If the resurrection as presented in the scriptures is not true, then Christianity is an impossibility. It is a river without a source. It is an effect without a cause if the resurrection is not true. There is no better attested fact in the history of humanity than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No event has ever been more fully documented. Notice the empty tomb. There has been no dispute in history, even from those who try to make the resurrection a fraud, that the tomb was empty. Who emptied the tomb? Did the Roman guards do it? The Roman guards who confessed a lie in Jerusalem that they had fallen asleep and that his friends had come and taken the body by night. You see, a Roman soldier would never go to sleep at his post. It meant instant death. And they would not have been overpowered by a bumbling bunch of fishermen coming to drag out the corpse of their dead leader. Who emptied the tomb? The empty tomb proves the resurrection. But what about the appearances of Christ? If we put the Gospels together and see uh, how it all works out, first of all, Jesus appeared to one person. Mark records that for us in this chapter. Later that day, He appeared to two. Then He appeared to a group of eleven. Later, He appeared to a group of 120. And on still another occasion, 500 people at one time saw Him alive and resurrected. Now, did they all at these many different occasions suffer from the same delusion? I don't think so. And the appearances of Christ prove the resurrection. Note the change in His disciples. They scattered and ran for cover when Jesus was captured and taken for trial. And yet only a few days later, they are boldly shouting from the rooftops, He is alive! Come, join us, for Jesus is alive! How do you account for the history of the church? How can the most significant movement and the most influential thing in human history have been built on a lie? If Jesus Christ had never risen from the dead, you would never have heard His name. For there were many would-be messiahs in the Jewish history who cropped up and faded into oblivion when their enemies did away with them. But because He was raised from the dead, He is not merely a remembered leader, He is a living presence. We don't know about Jesus Christ, but we know Him because He lives in us. There are other occasions in Scripture where the dead were brought back to life. And so some have tried to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
was not a unique event. That's not true. Those others were resuscitations. Flesh and blood were brought back to life only to die again at a later time. But when Jesus Christ left the tomb without the benefit of the stone having been rolled away, when He left the tomb, He left it in His glorious glorified resurrection body into which likeness all of us shall be changed at His coming. Mark chapter 16. The door is open. Verses 1 to 8. See with me the arisen Lord. We need to be very sure to understand that the stone was not rolled away from the mouth of the tomb in order to let Jesus out. He was already gone. The stone was rolled away in order to let his followers in to see that he had been resurrected from the dead. In verses 1 to 4, Mark describes how the stone is removed. The women who followed him so faithfully, as soon as the Jewish Sabbath day was over, the night before they came to the tomb, you see, their day ran from sundown to sundown. And so the Sabbath, during which they could not do any work, was from 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday. Saturday evening, they had bought spices and prepared them for his body. Sunday morning, they left for the tomb, as John's Gospel tells us, before dawn. And they were so grief-stricken over their last chore as they supposed it for the fallen leader, that these women neglected to take any men with them who would have the strength to roll the massive stone from its trough before the door to the tomb. But when they arrived at the garden place where Jesus had been laid away, they saw that the door was already open. The stone was rolled away. Now, you know, it's interesting to realize that they didn't know he was not going to be there. And if they had known that there was supposed to be a contingent of Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, in all likelihood, they never would have gone at all. But you see, the Roman guard was arranged quietly so as not to stir public attention. The leaders of the Jews had gone to Pilate apart from a public audience and had asked him to do this thing. So they did not know that Rome would try to keep Christ in the tomb. And they went, and the stone was removed. In verses 5 to 8, Mark tells us how the Savior is resurrected. They entered and found an angel guarding the stone crypt where Jesus had been laid. And they saw the undisturbed grave clothes. Now Mark's gospel is the briefest and the most concise. But from reading the other gospels, it made a deep impression on the doctor, Luke, and on John the apostle. For when John and Peter, the first to enter the crypt and see the grave clothes, when they went in, they saw there the bandages that had been wrapped around the corpse just laying as though there were still a body within them. You see, when the Jews prepared the body for burial, the first thing that they would do after the body was cooled off would be to wrap him in long bandages, much like the bandages some of our ladies are preparing uh, to send off. And they would start at the neck and wrap the body very tightly to bind it 
in these bandages, crossing the arms and wrapping the body up like a moth in a cocoon. Now what Peter and John saw was not all of those bandages all rolled up and stacked to one side, but what they saw, and they didn't understand it at the time, what they saw was all of those wrappings wrapped up in circles, only there wasn't anybody on the inside. Now that ought to illustrate for us that Jesus didn't need a door to get out of the grave if he could get out of those things that easily. They saw the grave clothes lying undisturbed as though the body had simply vanished from beneath them as indeed it had. Scripture says they were afraid. But we know from reading the other Gospels that these women composed themselves quickly and ran to share the news with Peter and with John and with the other disciples. Jesus tells them, verses 7 and 8, Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Now I believe that that's significant. We know that Peter himself told Mark about how he had failed the Lord by denying Him. And Peter remembered gratefully how on resurrection morning Jesus said to the women, Go and tell my disciples and Peter, Peter who denied me, Peter the braggart who failed, Peter who denied he ever knew who I was. Go tell my disciples and Peter. And how sweet an illustration that Jesus gave a special invitation to that fallen follower. He never tires of forgiving us and restoring us into His mercy and His love. The arisen Lord. Then Mark describes in verses 9 to 18 the appearing Lord. Here is merely a synopsis, a, a summary statement that Mark gives of the many appearances of Christ. The record of these appearances does not sound as though the disciples of Jesus invented the story of the resurrection. You see, his enemies try to say that the disciples stole the body and then tried to feather their own beds by building their power base around this myth of a risen leader from the dead. But you will note in reading the Bible that it was his disciples who were the very last ones to believe that he was alive. They wouldn't believe it at all. They were the last to come around. And it strikes me as very strange the links that a skeptical unbeliever will go to to try to prove his unbelief. There is a Jewish writer, Jewish by race, though he is really nothing by religion, who has written a series of books beginning with one entitled The Passover Plot. And if you ever want to read something that sounds like science fiction, you pick those up. I had one of those until I threw it away. His premise is that it was an elaborate scheme and uh, concocted in cooperation with some of the Romans and some of the officials to drug him and make him look as though he were dead and then to uh, hide his body somewhere after a period of time claim that he had risen from the dead and surely enough to present him alive. That doesn't sound very much like a man who had had his hands and his feet pierced with spikes 
and who had had a Roman spear gouged into his side until massive amounts of blood and water flowed down to the ground, does it? What lengths a skeptic will go to try to justify his unbelief. And then here is the truth rejected. Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast a powerful demon, was the first one to whom he appeared. She had returned all of his love and goodness to her with unfailing devotion. She was the first one because it was she who rose a great while before the dawn to go and be there so that she might minister to the body of Christ. Where were the disciples? Where were the others who had followed him and gloried in the shouts of acclamation when he entered Jerusalem? They were off yonder in that borrowed room, that upper room. They were wallowing in self-pity. Still, they mourned and would not be comforted. And Mark tells us a very strange thing. Here is one with whom they were very well acquainted, who had followed the Lord very closely. And yet when she told them, Jesus is alive and I know that it's true because I have seen Him myself, they refused to believe her. You see, that's part of human nature. At this point, these disciples weren't having much fellowship with God for they had given up and remember that it's always too soon to give up when God's involved in a situation. They had given up. They were out of fellowship with God. And they preferred their own grief to her good news. See, that's just a part of unvarnished human nature. In the flesh, people are not happy unless they're unhappy. And what happened must have been something like this. Mary came in and said, I've seen the Lord. They said, why don't you leave us alone? We're grieving because the Lord is dead. Oh, but I've seen Him. He's alive. Oh, leave us alone with your silly tales. We're broken hearted. Don't you care that the Lord is dead? You're not listening to me. The Lord is alive. Leave us alone. They just weren't happy unless they could be unhappy. By the way, that attitude toward life is always an unmistakable mark of the dominating presence of Satan in a Christian's life. Got to find something to be unhappy about. That's exactly the way these disciples were. And then in verses 12 and 13, the two reclaimed. Now Mark tells us in two verses what Luke tells us about at great length in chapter 24 of his gospel. Two of their number had been walking home toward the village of Emmaus when a stranger joined them and they had a conversation with him and the conversation got around to why they were so unhappy and they told him, well, we had a great dream and it's gone right down the drain and he began to teach them the scriptures how that Christ always was intended to die, but that he would rise from the dead. And to shorten the story a little bit, when they arrived home and he entered the house with them and prayed over their evening meal, their eyes were opened somehow and they realized that their guest was Jesus. These two had told their friend by the way, by the roadside, that they didn't believe what the women had said. Note the love of Jesus. There was no faith here. There was only unbelief. 
They didn't accept it. They thought it was some kind of silly old woman's tale. They didn't accept a word of it. And yet Jesus, though he knew of their rejection, reclaimed them by the way. And they returned quickly to report to others. And then see in verses 14 to 18, here is the task received. The others still wouldn't believe it. Jesus by now has appeared to all of the women. He has appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. And so that evening, He comes and stands among them in that upper room. And there, after assuring them that He is no figment of their collective imagination, He reveals to them their task as He stood among them. And let us summarize what that task is. You may reduce it to these terms. The task of the church, and it remains so today, is twofold. It is a preaching task. Every gospel records what Jesus said, and the first thing that He charged the church to do in all four of them was to proclaim God's Word. The Bible and its proclamation is not the main thing that the church is to do. It is the only thing. There is not one thing that the church has to offer the world except the Word of God in the saving knowledge that Jesus is alive today. And the church will stand or fall according to her loyalty to God's Word. I listened to a tape by a great preacher just the other day. And in the tape, he was talking about attitudes towards Scripture. And he said something about how often we are prone to say, well, it seems to me. I'll paraphrase him a little bit. And then he pointed out that he could not recall any time in the entire Bible when God Almighty asked any human being what they thought about anything. What I think... What my opinions are, and the same is true for you, don't have anything to do with God's work. Jesus said in John 15, 15, everything that God has told me, I have told you. And I do believe that God told Jesus enough to keep us going. The Word of God is not the main thing the church is all about. It's the only thing. The only thing, and their task, first of all, is a preaching task, and it remains true today. The central event in the life of this church is when we gather to worship. God has so ordained it. And then that task is a healing task, to heal the needs of hearts as well as the bodies of men. And you may summarize what Jesus told His disciples as Mark records it, by saying that the task of the church is first, foremost, and always a preaching task. And it is a healing task. But notice that Jesus tells them His power is available to accomplish it. He didn't ask us to do the impossible before it is impossible without Him. His power is available to accomplish the task. And he reminds them, not in this gospel, but he reminds them in Matthew's gospel. Matthew recalls his words as he said, I will never leave you, never leave you. 
The light of God that is shown in Jesus Christ is always there. And when you do not see it, it is because your eyes are closed, not because the light has ceased to shine. We are never alone. His power is available. And that fact makes the task of the church a realistic goal in our world, in our community, in our families, to those around us, to teach His Word, to proclaim His message. And then verses 19 and 20. Here is the ascended Lord. Notice first of all in verse 19, the Master is gone. Sorrow is past. Everything that He had to endure is over. And now He is at home again, seated at the right hand of God. That's what Mark says. The Lord, after He had spoken to them, was received up into heaven. And He sat down on the right side of God. The Master gone. Verse 20, the men going. One very serious mistake that many Christians make after God has dealt with them in a wonderful way and drawn them to a deeper commitment to Him is that they sit around and get all happy all over again about the wonderful experience that they've had with God. God doesn't deal with us in order that we might glory in the memory of past experience. God deals with us so that we might be made more like Jesus and more effective in the work of ministering to a lost world. And it's always a mistake to sit around and glory on the past at the neglect of the present and with no concern for the future. I sat with a minister one day a few months ago who had just dealt with a very serious problem in the life of a young woman. He is a man whose life has been greatly changed in just the last couple of years by a deeper walk with the Lord. But he is a man who since his conversion has been a red, hot, and fireball personal evangelist winning people to Jesus right and left. And he expressed the frustration of his heart as he said, Charlie, I believe we need to go deeper with the Lord. He said, but while we're going deeper, little girls like that are going to hell. We need to remember that balance. Lest while we go deeper, while we merrily row our boat down the stream of life, those for whom God has touched our lives in order that we might reach them, go to hell because we neglected them. The self-pitying, mourning band of followers was transformed into aggressive witnesses. They got busy. They went out. They went everywhere. They became militant and victorious. And so ought we to be. Before 20 years had passed, a wild-eyed Roman official was told by a panicky Jew, these who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So must we be. And why? 
because he is alive. He arose. He is the arisen Lord. He is the appearing Lord. And he is the ascended Lord poised at the right hand of God awaiting the command to come and rapture the church and take us to himself. It is the truth. How else do you account for Christianity? Can one who did not rise from the dead touch the lives of people removed from his ministry by 2,000 years? How do you account for what he's done for you if it's not true? How do you account for all that he has accomplished? The fact is the door is open. He is alive. And Scripture dictates a question that must be dealt with as we worship tonight. That question is this. Which side of the resurrection are you living on? Which side of the resurrection are you living on? I believe that in Scripture we see things that correspond to our own experience, and I believe that's true in this passage of Scripture. I've been in the church all of my life. My earliest memory, as for many of you, is of the church and of the activities of the church. And I must confess that probably outnumbering by at least a hundred to one, I have been involved in church situations from the time of childhood to the present day more than a hundred times as many when you would have thought that he was still in the grave. He's alive. Which side of the resurrection do you live on? Has God got a broken arm? Is the arm of the Lord shortened that he cannot save? Is there anything, Scripture says, too hard for him? Which side of the resurrection do you live on? The angel said, He is risen. He is not here. Come, see the place where he lay. Now, go and tell the story. May we pray. Father, I thank you that he is alive. And oh God, how accountable we are, all of us, for acting like he'd never gotten out of the grave. Lord, we're starting and fighting bushfires while the whole world is ablaze. And I just pray that you'd forgive us, Lord. We know that you can and that you want to. And I pray that you'd bring within our bodies a spirit of repentance and grief over the way we've acted. Acted as though there were no reality, no word to live by, no love to share, only axes to grind while the world goes to hell. Forgive us, all of us, as Daniel did, I pray for my people. I am a part of your people. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Forgive us. Restore us as you did, Peter. Accept us anew. And give us another chance to do what you want us to do before you let judgment fall like a crushing hammer. Lord, we love you. We fail you so much and so often.
Lord, you knew we would, and it's hard for us to believe that you loved us anyway. Don't give us justice. Give us mercy. Lord, may we, no one of us, ever again be guilty as though the door were closed on the tomb. Thank you that it's open. Thank you that the grave is nothing but a pleasant place to await the resurrection. Thank you that there are no graves that contain the spirits of yours. Thank you that there are no graves that contain the remains of your work done in your way. Bear your naked arm and do among us, because Jesus is alive, things that only you can do. And may great fear and wonder fall on all the people, as it did when they saw the church at Jerusalem. I thank you that you want us to think big and pray big. I thank you for leading me to pray this prayer. And I thank you that because we have prayed it and many have agreed, you are going to answer it. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.